Welcome to the Uncut Podcast. I'm Pastor Luke. And I'm Pastor Cameron. And this is the Uncut Podcast, where we talk about things in an uncut and honest manner. We talk about faith, life, theology, ministry, anything that particularly maybe gets under our skin a little bit. Um, today, we're going to be uh, diving into a interesting video that was sent to us by uh, one of you uh, who's listening, and uh, I think this is going to bring some um, good conversation to the forefront. So I'm excited to kind of dig in here a little bit. Me too. So it's good. It's a good, it certainly is a good video to spark conversation. It's got me all. Worked up inside. Feeling things. A little angsty. <laughs> sure. Um, so we were sent a video, and we'll have that linked at the um, in our description and in our show notes and everything like that. So you can go and you can watch that video if you would like to. But we will cover pretty much the – pretty much – well, I mean, it depends on how long this conversation yeah. takes us. I can't say we'll get through it all in one episode, but – We'll cover it pretty much. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not much to describe other than it's um, it's a Catholic who is of the persuasion that Protestantism is a heresy, is the word that she used to describe mm-hmm. all of Protestantism. Protestantism. I'm going to have a hard time saying that <laughs> word. <laughs> she didn't even – that's like not even a broad – because that is – that's the opening – it's a. It was an Instagram video. Yeah, it was an Instagram was reel. reel. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's really short. Yep. And there was like this punchy music behind oh, yeah. it, and it was like, okay, I'm going to show all the internet why Protestantism is a heresy, and and so that's like the title. Like that's text. the opening is why is Protestantism? Why Protestantism is a heresy. Yes, and just so you know, if you're not Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, you are a Protestant. Right. Just clarify that. If you're a Baptist, uh, Lutheran, Presbyterian, non-denominational, like yeah. you are, you fall underneath the category of Protestant. Protestant, yeah, out of the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. Anyway, but it doesn't even feel like it wasn't even just. It's not like a broad brush. It's like a broad. It's like a mile wide paint sprayer. She just. She paints, <laughs> yeah. paints all Protestantism with. And it's why – I think that's why I get so fired up about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's nothing to do with her questioning theological beliefs right. vis-a-vis the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually kind of a healthy thing is to have those conversations. And if you know me – at all, you will know that I, I mean, I, I think pretty highly of the Catholic Church. Right. I, I, I feel like I do more, I, I feel like I end up spending more time, like, giving apologetics for, like, making the Catholics seem reasonable yes. to other people who don't right. like the Catholics. <laughs> right. Well, um, because here at Conduit, we, for whatever reason, I don't know, we have a, we have a pretty large expat, <laughs> expat Catholic <laughs> population yeah. of people who have come out of the Catholic Church and who have not had positive experiences. Um, and we do a lot of, okay, well, 
but yes so much so that like sometimes maybe we need to clarify that we also aren't catholic, catholic. and right. that we don't agree with everything that the catholic church does and believes correct it's why we're not catholic it's why i'm not catholic right, right. it's why i'm not a priest right also i enjoy being married yep. so it but it and so people might see this as like an anti-Catholic thing. It's not an anti-Catholic thing. No. It's an anti-generalizations. Mm-hmm. And it's not even a pro-Protestant thing. It's more of like, for me, it's more of a like, let's have reasonable discussion based on actual truth from scripture and actual truth from history mm-hmm. rather than let's put together a punchy reel on Instagram to kind of send one over the bow right. of the church. Yeah. Um, so if you're watching this, whatever your name is, um, Springtime yeah. Catholic, I think it is. <laughs> it's not yeah. personal. No, uh, it's not. So. Um, but I think it'll I think it'll be a good launching pad for us. And also just to I don't think I mean, I don't know, Catholicism is such a brought is so big and there is so much literature and so many edicts and councils have been had that like i can't say with certainty but i don't think that her technical uh categorization of the protestant church as a giant heresy is technically the stance of the catholic church anymore i don't think so i think they tend to call us something brothers like uh like disconnected or Mm -hmm. Something like that. I think that's a good question. I don't know the answer. To that. Um, so I don't know. I like, obviously they probably sit in the same category as us and say, "Well, you know, we think you're wrong." <laughs> right. But I don't think that the Catholic Church's general posturing and stance as a whole is that of considering us at large heretics. No, maybe with maybe with the exception of denying us the Eucharist, but yes, that. Other than that, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. So we'll kind of start by just kind of going through. She kind of makes that initial statement. Um, and then she kind of just has kind of point by point kind of a statement that she kind of feels like is her, her like, um, I don't know, proof or kind of like, yeah, you know, proposition one. And so the first one is and you want to talk about something that definitely is a dividing uh, issue for Protestants and Catholics, or at least as far as like popular ones that gets talked about. Can and, we? Can we? Can I make one clarifying before we get into even the first point? Yes. Which is when she says Protestantism is heresy, mm-hmm. like understanding what heresy is. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because it is kind of it can be a term that you use. It, it attacks, but like it. It's a confusing term for some because of the way that it's been used. Well, it's a very com- – like historically it's complicated Complicated, too. yeah. But heresy is generally any theological belief, doctrine, or position that goes against or flies in the face of what has been well established throughout the history of the church, specifically yeah. the earliest generations of the church where doctrine was formed out of – personal relationship with Jesus um, and, um, you know, being contemporary to the time of Jesus and then really being firmly established in the 
ancient creeds, most notably the Nicene Creed. Yeah. Um, you know, first written in 325 AD, then um, kind of edited and reestablished as the Niceno-Constantinople Creed in 381 AD, which kind of established what is Orthodox mm-hmm. Christian doctrine. Yep. Which both Protestants and Catholics can and should affirm. They do affirm. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. okay. So that's heresy. Yeah. Anything that flies in the face of what the established Christian Orthodox doctrine. Yeah. yeah. I think heresy is complicated also by the fact that, like, churches, both both Catholic and Protestant, I think, at different points killed people over heresy. Oh, yeah. Um, so, like, yeah. it's, a, it's a pretty loaded term, particularly throughout the Middle Ages. It became, like... Like heresy became an executionable offense, um, which is a dark side of church history. Um, yeah. Well, so, and even like not maybe not quite as dark, but equally as sinister is it became a way for the church as an institution to blockade or, for to use a Catholic term, excommunicate people from the community of faith, yeah. denying them the Eucharist, denying them any sacraments, denying them the fellowship. Which is a, which might not sound like a big deal to you if you're a Protestant, or particularly if you're a non-denominational person mm-hmm. through and through, but it's a massive deal if you have a Catholic understanding of salvation and the church. That's mediated through the Eucharist. Right. Right. Like so yeah. like they they're in a sense saying we we cut off access to salvation for you. Yes. Yep. You're on your own. Yep. So, okay. Okay. So, the first kind of thing she points out is that the Bible tells us to call Mary blessed, but Protestants don't. Okay. So, does the Bible, uh, the first the, the first question, not even getting into really the, um, uh, the theology of Mary herself. Right. But it's just a just call just the call her the Bible tells us to call Mary blessed, but Protestants don't. Is that true? Well, she has three verses that she she quotes. Well, let's look at those three verses. So she says uh, verses about Mary, Luke chapter one verse forty eight. Seems like you should look at that one. Okay, and Luke verse one or chapter one verse twenty eight, and then uh, you look at. John chapter 19, 26 through 27. John 19. Draw your swords. (laughs) Yeah, Bible drill. If you're listening along, uh, we expect you to hold that Bible high and quickly turn. Go. Now, who, I mean, it's completely possible that she's probably, she's probably wanting us to read out of the Vulgate. Um, (laughs) You know. She wants us to read the Latin. Right. (laughs) Um... (laughs) That would be, yeah. So that mine is John 19, you said? Yeah, John 19, 26 through 27. Okay, so this is at the crucifixion of Jesus, the Mary at the, at the foot of the cross. Mm-hmm. When Jesus saw his mother there, Mary, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Okay. Does not say to call. No, I, I'm pretty familiar with the Greek of this passage as well, and nowhere is there the illusion of calling her blessed. I mean, I think the only thing you get from this passage is maybe we should call Mary woman. 
<laughs> which I'm not sure they would think is very appropriate. No. Okay. Right. So Luke 1, 28 says that the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And then if I go later in the chapter, she is mentioning um, verse 48, which is probably her strongest verse out of all these verses. Verse 48 is the song that Mary is kind of singing, the Magnificat, if you're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. um, verse 48 says, For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant God, has been mindful of Mary, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. Mm. So that would be the... Um, that would be probably her strongest at first. Yeah. Um, but I could be kind of nitpicky about that and say that that's more of a declarative statement yes. and yeah. less of a command statement. Well, and not, yes, I think we can definitely make that point right. as well, but it's also the difference between, um, you know, like I think, you probably consider blessed to be an adjective in that rather than a noun. Yes. Although the Greek doesn't really, the Greek language is complicated in the sense of it. It's not form, formulated exactly like English is, but it's right. what I'm basically saying is that Mary isn't, Mary's not necessarily referring to the word blessed as a title. Right. As much as it is of a like, um, a place where she sits, like she sits in a place of being blessed yep. because of her faith. Right. And I would agree. She is blessed. She 100%. was the mother of God. Of course. <laughs> like yes. that's a really important thing. Yeah. Um, I do think like, you know, so obviously there is like a way in which I – and we as Protestants can come forward and say, well, actually, we do think Mary is a blessed individual. And um, and can even maybe like we can there's even room for us to talk about like this is this is how Catholicism usually comes up in conversations I'm having, is usually there is so much fear or kind of hurt around Catholicism that I usually end up trying to kind of bridge some of the overcompensation that we've done. Mm -hmm. So uh, as Protestants, we almost never talk about Mary. Right. And even in the, like, um, even when we talk about her during uh, Advent, um, we, we like to, there's one particular storyline we like to emphasize. We like to emphasize her kind of plight uh, and vulnerability and um, but we don't always necessarily highlight the um, the faith and the belief and like the fact that she was chosen that God did choose her to right. be uh, the physical mother of Jesus of God like mm -hmm. that is a massive deal massive yeah but we don't come to the that does not I know it doesn't come to the same category as the person who made this video. When she's saying we don't call Mary. we don't call her Mary, we, yeah, we don't call her blessed, blessed, yeah. Well, As in title, I'm yeah. assuming yeah. right, like we don't hold the what's that? The perpetual virginity of Mary is not a. Right. We we believe that James the the book of James was written by the biological 
half-brother of Jesus. So we believe that Mary did go on to have children. She did not remain a virgin her entire life. Um, and a whole bunch of other kind of stuff that gets yes. wrapped up in this belief about Mary. She was decidedly human. Yes. She was not she did not share a any type of miraculously or supernaturally divine part of her being or personality that would somehow give her, you know, special blessedness as is equal to the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting because like this, this is one of the topics and one of the reasons I think that this Mary becomes a tricky or has been a tricky topic for people to juggle theologically is because anytime we come close to the line of dealing with God Christ being fully human and fully God. There is a tension on both sides of those. And I would say the tension that we probably run into more often is the tension to remove Christ from humanity a little bit. Uh, we begin like um, it, something that my theological one of my, my theology professors at college said, and he was like, it's not untrue to say that God died on a cross. Right. But if you say that, like I've said that here at church on a Sunday morning, and I've seen people get visibly like, well, yeah. Right. Because we're not used to talking in those terms. Um, but that is true. Now he also, God also resurrected from the dead. Right. Right. And so he was both fully divine and fully human. And at different points in the story, we like to emphasize Christ's divinity or his humanity because of it might make us uncomfortable to say God died. It also makes us uncomfortable to say that God was born of a relatively ordinary woman. Mm-hmm. It can be for people. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that, like, there was a lot of normalcy there. Well, maybe digging into a little bit more. And I know we got a lot of things to talk about with this video, but we'll just see where it goes. Uh, it's like, why? What? What are the reasons that a statement like this? Like, I think what she's doing is she's pointing out the angst that Protestants have with Mary. Yeah, and they don't call her blessed. And uh, what is typically the uncomfortableness? that Protestants have around the theology or beliefs around Mary Mm -hmm. that maybe the Catholics have, or maybe not so much the orthodoxy of Mary, but the orthopraxy of worship. Yep. Um, What what would your, what would your, I've got thoughts on that, but I'm interested to know, like, why do people, why do Protestants get so angsty about Mary? Well, for Protestants, right? So, like we were teasing a little bit earlier, Catholics um, don't technically believe that you're saved by anything other than Christ, but they do believe that things mediate the grace of Christ. Yes. And so, and that's, you know, and we can, we can dive more into that into the church, but that also comes down into the way in which we pray. And so the idea of praying to Mary is very, very off-putting to Protestants because we so strongly believe that there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the Holy Spirit, Christ, God himself, 
acts as our high priest. Therefore, to put anyone as a mediator through any form is to elevate them to a place where they're not um, they're not called to be. Right. Do we have good evidence to suggest that that position of there being one mediator between God and man, that being Jesus Christ himself? Pretty sure the Bible says. Pretty that. sure the Bible says yeah. that in more than one place. Yes. But um, I, the, I, I, and you know, I'm aware. Probably the strongest passage on the other side of the argument of people who do pray to saints and to Mary is the Hebrews passage, Hebrews 12. Mm-hmm. But even though they act as a cloud of witnesses, there's nothing there indicating that we ought to be praying for them. That is a but theological even to put that, extrapolation. Yeah, exactly. And even to put that into biblical context, Hebrews probably speaks the most directly about there being one mediator, yes. one great high priest, right, and that being Jesus Christ. Melchizedek, right. priest and king. Yes. Yeah. So that's a, that's a theological sticking point. And so yes. the reason why Protestants probably often put such a strong arm against any talk around Mary is because of the want to protect they don't even want to approach no the worship of mary exactly yeah yeah okay so and was there anything else you wanted to say on that topic oh there's so much i want to say (laughs) (laughs) there's only so much i'm willing to say (laughs) okay okay all right next point this this one we'll see if we can get off of this topic once we get on it um jesus tells us to consume the eucharist as it is truly his body but Protestantism doesn't teach that. Okay. So, <laughs> so we have a whole episode that we would like to do. Yeah. On um, <clears throat> the sacraments. Yes. Uh, and the Eucharist, or what Protestants probably know it better as, is communion. Right. Is one of two main sacraments, the two, one of the two main sacraments that the Protestant church celebrates, right? Yeah, yeah we can quibble over the amount right. of sacraments, but it... That being communion and baptism. baptism. And the washing of feet. And marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we're, <laughs> we're going to get in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> but no, the two being Eucharist or the communion and yes. baptism. So let's try to... First, without getting into too many differences between like Second Vatican Council and oh, good. all of that, yeah. what is the Catholic position on the Eucharist or on communion from a theological standpoint? Now, what was the what was the statement again that Jesus tells us to consume the Eucharist? Okay. As it is truly his body, right. but Protestantism does not teach that. All right. So it's maybe kind of hard to determine what she's actually saying we don't teach, whether that the Eucharist is his body right. or that we don't have to take communion. take it or consume it. Right. So maybe take them, we can kind of mm-hmm. take them in two different yeah. steps. Yeah. You know, does Protestantism, which is, again, a super wide brush because what Protestantism are you talking right. about? Because so we're talking about everything from Lutheranism to us, which is very different. Right. You're like you have Episcopalian, which is like right. a sliver away mm-hmm. from being Catholic. Right. Anglicans. Church of England. Right. Yeah. Um, or you have non-denominational conduit ministries in the middle of Jamestown, New York, right. which doesn't look like anything 
highly liturgical. Right. Your Baptists, your fundamentalists, your independents, right. your free churches, your Right. Yeah. Right. So so Protestantism doesn't teach that we should take communion. It's just I, that, that's, I don't even want to address that because it's not like not even worth it. Of course, we take communion. And of yeah. course, we think that it's important. Yes. Well, it, so yeah. So like it, it, it is. I guess I have my opinions about the frequency in which churches should practice taking communion. Mm-hmm. I am of the opinion that we should practice it more frequently. I know that in the past, uh, our tradition of churches have kind of straight away from doing that because the fear out of doing it on a regular basis makes us look Catholic, <laughs> makes us look Catholic <laughs> or, or devalues, devalues it, it or that we're just doing it because it's what we always do. Right. So they wanted to reinvigorate meaning into it. And oh, so, man, there's, so much there. there's so much there. I think that was the wrong decision. I yes. think you reinvigorate meaning by exploring and teaching the meaning, not by doing it less. less. Um, and so th- there are, like, I'm not going to be naive. I know that there are churches out there that rarely, if ever, do communion. And that makes me angry. Um, I think we should do communion. Yeah. You know, so. And, yeah, I don't know if I'm angry about it, but I certainly think that they're missing something in their theology. And yes. I certainly think they're missing something in their practice. Do I think that Jesus, um, do I think that Jesus tells us to take communion mm. um i think that's a tricky statement because mm. um because i don't think that what jesus was doing at the last supper matthew 25 you know um was i i don't think that jesus had in his mind in that moment i'm establishing a sacrament for my church to use mm. for now until i come home or until I come back to earth. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't necessarily think that he was thinking in the same way about communion in particular as we would want to say that he was thinking and what he was trying to institute in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there, I, I agree that there, that we don't take communion enough. Uh, I agree that it has lost in in its infrequency has lost some of its meaning, which actually goes like the opposite yes. of why people were doing it infrequently. Right. Right. Um, but I think it it goes to the reason that you would do it more frequently would be, and this is why this is one of the things that I love about um the Catholic faith, is the the re- one of the reasons that you would do it every week or would do it so frequently is because of how central it is to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, the broken body Mm -hmm. of Jesus Christ, the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the remission and forgiveness of our sins and us taking that by faith, receiving by faith the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for our sins. I don't think it becomes, I don't think that message becomes less important the more you do it if the basis of it is understanding it's God's gift to us in Jesus Christ. We wouldn't any other gift to us in Jesus Christ from God. We wouldn't be like, I only want this on the first Sunday of every month because if I get the gift every week, then it won't be as important or special to me. Right. 
Anyway. Anyways. So all that to say, simply at least addressing the potential of her two points in this one point, Protestants do teach that you should take communion. Correct. Like, like it would be like we can say that with a broad stroke. And these two Protestants think think that we should probably take it more than once a month. Yes. Yeah. And then so the last so the second part of that then is that she might be emphasizing not the first part, but the second part, which is the part where there is some difference between what Protestants teach and Catholics teach. And uh what is she, how does she put it? She puts it uh consume the Eucharist as it is truly his body. Right. So So this is the point, this is the theological point of the Eucharist that usually is most significant in departure from Protestantism and Catholicism is what actually is the Eucharist? What is yeah. the bread? Yeah. What is the cup or the wine or right. the juice or whatever? What is it? And Catholics would say... They would say a big fancy word called transubstantiation. Yep, that one. Yeah. <laughs> transubstantiation, if you guys didn't get that and us trying to say it together, um, which... Um, and again, like I am, I am not a Catholic scholar. I want to say that very clearly. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and there's been volumes and volumes and volumes and probably people literally killed over oh. divergent beliefs on trans, transubstantiation. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so we wade into waters that are a little murky with blood, honestly. Yeah. Um, but that the elements in the proclamation of mm -hmm. the gospel, in the words of institution by the priest, that they actually transform yes. or become mm -hmm. the actual body and blood right. of Jesus Christ. Now, not that the bread will then appear right. in its uh, form. In its <laughs> <laughs> to in be essence, flesh in his, his essence. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there's this whole there's that's where it gets a little bit murky for us, is that it's an understanding that the bread remains looking like bread and tasting like bread, and the wine remains like juice or wine. Um, but the essence of it, the its true essence behind curtains of sense become the body of Christ right. in its trueness. So that's a really philosophical and very platonic and right. Greek understanding, but that's yeah my best attempt at explaining it. Right. And I guess my, my question for Catholic scholars, if you're a Catholic scholar and you're listening to this or watching this or whatever, I make a make a reply video or yeah. get, get, jump in the comments or whatever, but is where is the like it feels a little bit to me like a distinction without there being a real difference. Like, well, no, it, lo it still looks like bread and it still looks like wine, but in a supernatural sense, it is actually right. the body and blood of Jesus. Right. Because then, so that's the Catholic view. And then if we get into, there's a wide range of views with inside of Protestantism. Mm -hmm. um, and... There's, I can't even remember the Lutheran name for theirs, which is so similar, it's almost difficult to parse the difference. I don't recall it either. Um, or there's the Reformed view, I think, that the the presence of God is above, under, and in. Mm -hmm. um, 
there's this very large category, which is just kind of the catch-all, which is I'll put my cards, which is probably where I land, which is real presence. Yeah. It's uh, just generally we believe God is present in the Eucharist or in the elements, but I'm not going to tell you how he's present. Right. Right. Like I'm not going to, it's a spiritual presence. It's a physical presence. It's an essence presence. Not going to make any um, jump mm-hmm. to that conclusion because I don't feel like the Bible clearly defines that. Right. Um, and then there would be people who would say these are um, symbols. Um, and so, and the biblical basis for all of those views, I feel like is just as substantial. Some people look at the passage where Christ institutes the supper and he says, uh, do this in remembrance in me mm-hmm. and make that the emphasis. And right. others read that in passage and they say, they see where Christ says, this is my body. This is my blood poured out and broken and shed for you mm-hmm. and make that the emphasis. Um, and so that's kind of the. Yeah, I mean, for instance, if you like in the Matthew account, um, Matthew 26, uh, starting in verse 26, I said 25 earlier, um, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many For the forgiveness of sins, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out uh, to the Mount of Olives. There's not a whole lot there. No. Um, You know, so there's not a lot by way of what does the scripture actually say. It becomes, I think, a game of spiritual or theological inference. Mm -hmm. What did Jesus mean behind the things that he was saying, which is a really, I don't want, dangerous maybe is not the right word, but it it becomes an exercise in futility to say, this is what Jesus actually meant, you know, in the Mark uh, account Mark 14 while they were eating Jesus took bread when he had given thanks he broke it gave it to his disciples saying take it this is my body and then he took the cup when he had given thanks he gave it to them they all drank from it this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many essentially this says the same thing as in Matthew truly I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink anew with you in the kingdom of God mm-hmm. um, so it I um, I suppose, you know, like, I don't know, it makes me want to do a little bit more restudy and re-reading on the nature of the history of Catholic theology and how even the doctrine of substantiation was. Do you, do you know how the doctrine of substantiation was I, I, formed or what it was formed out of? I do not. Um, I do not. It, it definitely, like... Uh, it definitely was a developed theology, though. It was not something that um, we've got, like, a whole lot of indication that, like, the early church had the exact same understanding that the current Catholic church has over that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the so the Luke account, mm-hmm. Luke 22, verse 19, took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Mm-hmm. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Um, that's it? Yep. Um. So, nothing about, like, this is my, like, do this in remembrance of me. It's not really clear what that even means. No, not necessarily. Um, yeah, I think John's probably, at least John is the passage or the, the, the gospel that I hear most quoted often with um, sacramental theology surrounding communion. So I'm interested to see if that account is a little bit more robust in any way. But I don't think it has any unique elements that are that... Again, it's where the emphasis is lying and how we're deciding to understand Jesus. Is Jesus speaking in some sort of literal sense where he's saying, this is my body, this is my blood? Or is he doing so with an understanding of metaphor? Um, what does it mean to be doing something in remembrance of me? Does that simply mean calling into mind or in doing in remembrance in that it's actually reenacting in a very spiritual sense of what Christ has done. So Mm -hmm. um, the range of meanings there that are possible to kind of understand from that passage is wide. All right. What's our next question? All right. So let's see. Next question. Our next statement. Statement. (laughs) Oh, this one's fun. Jesus gave us the papacy, yet that is commonly rejected. Please tell me she's got verses for it. Like, oh, she's got verses for that. Um, is it like you are Peter on this rock? I her only verse for this for this particular point is in Matthew 16, 18 through 19, which I'm guessing is the mm-hmm. Peter passage. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Was it's the passage where, you know, who do you say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still there's Jer- Jeremiah or what, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, so that's pr- fairly predictable. Yep. Um, <clears throat> he also calls Peter Satan, uh, Satan in the next verse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, right, in the very next, in the very next I'd stanza. Be, I'd so. be interested to see that integrated into papal theology. Um, right. <laughs> so the idea here in Catholic theology is that the papacy – or the office of Pope. Yes. Um, yeah. The office of Pope has come as an instituted, I guess you could call it um, office or position yeah. within the true Jesus instituted church. Yep. And that, um, 
I think that there was a time, a historical period, where it was out of the actual lineage of Peter that a pope had to be. Yes, I think so too. Right? We had to somehow be a disciple of G- of Peter for right. having been. But then at some point, again, I need. I, suppose I need to buff up on my Catholic history, it became one who essentially stands within the spiritual lineage of Peter. Yeah. Which is usually a cardinal, Mm -hmm. right? Someone who's coming out of the office of cardinal in the Catholic Church. And so now Jesus has obviously established that Pope Francis is the leader of the true church. Well, first, let me just be the one to say that, like, I can affirm her statement. Protestants don't teach the papacy. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Protestants do not teach that Jesus established the papacy. Correct. So, so we we, we can agree with this particular point. Yes. Um, We we are not papists. No. No. We believe that there is one leader of the church. Christ. Jesus Christ. Exactly. Jesus Christ alone. Mm-hmm. Um, he calls men and women to serve him and to lead in a, mm-hmm. in a place of service and humility uh, according to the giftings that the Spirit has given to those people by faith in him. And um, correct. I do yeah. not believe that there is a long spiritual line or lineage tracing back to the actual person of Peter or the spiritual lineage of Peter that must be established in order to lead the church. Yeah. We understand Period. that that passage referring to Peter as being an establishment of the church. Yes. Right? And the authority of the church, not the authority of the office of papacy. Yeah. Or like the question there in, you know, like what Jesus says, you are right. Um, and I will call you Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Right. Oh right. yeah, yeah. What, what is the rock? We well, well, it's a little bit of a play on words. Yes. With Jesus, okay, because the word, the name Peter, actually literally meant rock. Yeah. Um, in the Greek, but I don't think that I don't think that the Greek, the actual Greek of that whole passage is very clear on Jesus saying, it is on you, Peter, as a person that I will build the church. Yeah. But instead, seems to, because it is in keeping with the rest of the theology of Jesus, mm-hmm. that it is on that it is on the truth of the proclamation of Peter, where he says, where Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Right. That it is upon the proclamation of Jesus' lordship Yep. And his messiahship that the church is built. Now that would square very clearly with all of the rest of Orthodox theology that we have. Mm-hmm. All the Pauline epistles, the rest of the gospels, yep. um, that it is on the proclamation of Jesus as Lord that the church is built, not the the fairly impetuous disciple Peter right. that the church has built. Well, and the thing too being is that like we don't see really much. We Peter absolutely was a significant leader in the early church and during the time in which a significant portion of the New Testament was written. But we don't get any reference to edicts or 
anything approaching no. Peter operating in what would be easily identified as an office of Pope. If anything, the New Testament would make a stronger argument for Paul, Paul as yes. acting as a Pope of sorts. Right. And if Paul believed that Jesus established Peter right. as the papal line or the papal head of the church, he certainly wouldn't have gone to Jerusalem and confronted him to his face, yeah. as he says in the book of Acts. Yeah, I'd like right. to see someone go do that with the current pope. Um. <laughs> I would love the opportunity, but <laughs> I doubt that I'll get it. So, yeah. so yeah, we don't we don't affirm agreed to see agreed. Right. Yep, she's right. We don't we don't teach that. Um, we are saved by faith alone. The Bible says so. Yet, oh no no no. Let me say this correct. She is stating the fact, she, this is her assertion, she says that we are not saved by faith alone, the Bible says so, yet that is rejected. I'm still confused as to really what she's actually saying there, or what she's asserting. Well, she's asserting two different verses from James, and two different passages from Matthew, but... Okay, okay so we know the James one, James ones, right? Yeah. You know, we are, um, you see that faith in faith and works working together. Yep. Right? And then she's talking about Matthew 19, 17 and Matthew 26. So I'll go to James just so that we're clear here. Okay. Um, so she's looking at 2, 14 through 17 and 2, yep. 24. Uh, so what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Um, but someone, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by deeds. Um, was that it? Yep. 2, 14 through 18? Yep, and then uh, 24. 24. Um, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Uh, very clear in that, in that uh, <clears throat> which is not clear in the English, but which is very clear in the Greek, is the emphasis of the language there at the beginning of the sentence, you see. Mm-hmm. It's not a declarative statement. It's actually a statement of being able to visually inspect with the senses the validity mm-hmm. or the strength of someone's faith or the fruit by which their faith expresses itself yes. in daily life and the fruit by which my internal faith in Jesus Christ, my saving faith expresses itself, should express itself in works. Bottom line is like, if you can't tell right. that I have saving faith in Jesus Christ by the things that I do or don't do, in life, yes. then there it should be a question of whether or not that faith truly exists. Mm-hmm. It's not as if my works or non-works substantiate or create my faith. Mm-hmm. It's that those things establish my faith as empirical fruit and empirical evidence that faith already exists yes. within me. Yeah. Right. So, so what's Matthew? So Matthew, she is mentioning... Oh, let me make sure I got this right. Matthew 19, 17. 
which says, Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Uh, and then Jesus goes in to kind of teach about the Ten Commandments. And then she's mentioning Matthew chapter 26. This one, not entirely sure why she's mentioning this one. Matthew 26, verse 40, uh, which is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. and says, mm -hmm. um, then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watching with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Okay. So... Uh, she is either quoting the wrong verse, probably, um, or I am just vastly missing her yeah. her extrapolation from that passage. Well, I think the even even if it is like the the gospel passages are pretty weak. In, yeah, in terms of making her argument, James probably makes the strongest argument, but it doesn't make it well when you understand the whole thrust of James' argument right. and the remain like the remain. This is classic what we call. Proof texting in the church, mm -hmm. which is you grab a verse, you pull it out of its context. Yep. Not only the context of the original um, place that it was written or for the reason that it was written, but you pull it out of the context of the whole council of scripture. Yes. Because if you were to line up all of the verses that even kind of alluded to salvation by works, James chapter 2, kind yep. of, maybe, but not really. Right. And then you lined up all of them um, that not just alluded, but flat out said, say, mm -hmm. we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and not by works so, so that, that no one can boast. Right. Right. That's Ephesians chapter two. It's, it's like, it's, it could not be more clear in the yes. whole council of scripture mm -hmm. that we are saved through the grace of Jesus Christ to us by faith. Right. Right. Yeah. I think the, I think the thing that comes down to, um, is maybe that sometimes we have an anemic understanding of faith, right? Faith as being simple, um, assenting to a belief. Yes. Right? It's just simply like faith is nothing more than saying that I believe Jesus to be God, right? Well, doesn't James say that? Doesn't he say, sorry to cut you off. No, no. But, but like, doesn't he say even demons believe that and they shudder? Yes, he does. You know, That's, he, you're right. He says, uh, <clears throat> you see that a person is considered, um, or no, where was it? Oh, yeah. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my by my deeds. Yes. You believe that there is one God. Great. Right? That's the ascent, yes. right? We, we just believe in a principle. Right. Even demons believe that. Right. And they shudder. Yep. So. Yes. So taking all of Scripture together... Right? Like it's, we understand that we are saved by faith, but that faith is more than a simple mental ascension to something or belief of something. It is also a, like, it's a, it's a full grabbing onto Jesus. I don't know how mm -hmm. else to kind of say that. Mm -hmm. And that results in works. Yeah. Well, it's a loving, it's a love of the Lord our God mm -hmm. with not just our mind. Yep. Right, not just a empirical or an assenting belief, but with all of our heart, mm -hmm. with all of our soul, yes. with all of our mind, right, and with all of our strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, right, which we would assume would be a demonstrable type of action, right. We, Jesus, often in the Gospels, right now, I'm looking at a bunch of passages where Jesus talks about trees that bear fruit, 
and you mm. know the tree by the fruit which it bears, mm -hmm. right? So like our works would be the fruit, yes, right? And the Correct. faith would be the type of tree we are, right? Mm. Like we we become children of God and we bear fruit because we are children of God. Yes. And not that we tape fruit onto the tree to right. make it a certain tree, right? Like right. if I right. were to take an apple and tape it onto the branch of an orange tree, does not become an apple tree, right? right? And yeah. so this is where that kind of our prioritization of faith mm -hmm. comes. Um, so you're correct. We, yeah. do, we do not preach that salvation is by faith. Right. We don't preach that because no. it's not true. Right. Uh, or that salvation is by works. We yeah, do yeah. preach it is by faith. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. We, okay. we, she is, again, correct. She is accusing us and we are found guilty. Yes. yes. And we'll be happily guilty of it. Yeah. Um, the next thing is, and this will be an interesting one to, to parse, uh, the Bible does not teach sola scriptura. Correct. Right. So for those who don't know what sola scriptura is, Cameron, what is sola scriptura? Sola meaning only or sole, and scriptura meaning scripture, mm -hmm. right? That scripture, um, scripture only, mm -hmm. or only scripture is part of the five solas of the Reformation. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of them. Right. For so those Deo who Gloria. Yeah. Yeah. Who are not listening or who are listening, I have a tattoo on my arm that says Soli Deo Gloria, yeah. only for the glory of God. Yes. Mm -hmm. So what does sola scriptura mean? You you so you say like only scripture, but what does that like theologically mean? Well, I mean it <laughs> <laughs> It depends on who you ask. Right. Um, I feel like a little bit like Jordan Peterson right now. It's like the question is dumb. You know? <laughs> like the question is not clear. Well, so um, this is this is the way I've heard it explained. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people take sola scriptura to mean that the Bible is the only authority on all things. Mm -hmm. That's how it gets played out in a lot of places. Sure. Um, and that's where we get into, and if you, you we could, we have an earlier episode about this, one of the first episodes we did, um, where we take the Bible and we try and make it to be a textbook or Wikipedia book about everything. And we come up asking the Bible really strange questions that it was never intended to answer. Uh, and so it doesn't have an answer. And we end up extrapolating things from it that aren't there. Um, I've heard someone make an apologetic for sola scriptura, and they have said that it does not mean solo, it's the only, but that it is the highest authority for the things which it chooses to speak upon. So, like, over what the Bible proposes to teach, so it proposes okay. to teach teach the nature of God, it is the highest authority on the nature of God. Okay. So that's the, that's the definition I was given when I was younger, but I have encountered so many people who um, are angry about Sola Scriptura, but they're angry about it because it's, uh, because they seem to understand it as a... Um, as meaning that the Bible is the highest and only authority on pretty much all topics. It's a limiting doctrine. It's a limiting doctrine. Yeah. Um, and so the 
the qualifications that I'm making and at least the understanding I had once upon a time is that like, it's not the only, it just happens to be the highest, right? So the highest, not the only. Um, so there's other ways that we can like nature reveals things about God. It provides an avenue for general revelation to still exist, but then also it limits itself to the scope through which the purpose of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm going to take a moment and just say that like, that's what I was told a long time ago. Mm. And I don't actually know if that's a, just someone's really nice apologetic that they kind of came up with as a better alternative to what sola scriptura has actually meant throughout the history of the church. My, whether or not that is a representation of what, and what that doctrine in that phrase has has meant and continues to mean yeah. i'm not entirely sure yeah. but i would say i am closer to that than the uh bible is the only and yeah. the highest on everything right opinion i i would agree i think yeah. we we're we run pretty closely although i would i would say that like <clears throat> the bible is there's no better authority for the revelation of the things of god in reference to at least the things in which the Bible speaks about. Yes. Like you're not going to get a better revelation or truth about X, Y, or Z. If the Bible talks about it, that is the end, right? Yep. What are the problems with that? The problems with that are that we we eisegete all kinds of things. Right. You know? Well, so, it, so, so then we'll go into the Bible and be like, well, it obviously, like, I'm going to find out what the rules for dating are yeah. uh, in I, the Bible. Yeah. Well, I will tell you that any... Mm, uh, I'm going to take some pot shots. Uh, <laughs> take them. Mental health and counseling and self-help books are the worst for this. Mm. So I'm, I'm a fan of um, attachment theory. Which if you're like mm-hmm. a counseling nerd, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. But I've run across books and they're like, well, let's find attachment theory in the Bible and see how Jesus is the most securely attached individual we've ever known. And really just getting to know Jesus and becoming securely attached to Jesus helps us have secure attachment in our other relationships. Yeah. That is eisegesis. Um, by eisegesis, we mean bringing meaning and inserting it into the Bible rather than taking meaning out of the Bible. Mm -hmm. The Bible was not written with the intention of displaying to us what secure psychological attachment means. So if that, that made no sense to you, um, sorry, Sorry. but, um, but that's one of the best examples I know of. Well, even like, so going back to like our preferred understanding based on what we talked about, like, let's say that it's the, it, it offers us the best, revelation or description on the things it chooses to talk about yeah right um going back to the first i think was was the first episode that we did which which handled the question what does it mean to be biblical Mm -hmm. um and the things that came out of that conversation uh i you know even that definition i think it begins to it begins to get weak um, maybe in particular around the uh, around Christology mm-hmm. and the nature, or not even Christology, but even like Trinitarian theology itself. Uh, because if we were to say, okay, sola scriptura, scripture offers the most clear representation of the nature and character of God. 
It's the highest. Mm-hmm. That alone, scripture yeah. alone. Yeah. I would say, I don't know what you would say, I'll let you comment yourself. I would say incorrect. Mm-hmm. I would say that that Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. I remember o- this. offers us the most clear, mm-hmm. decisive um, view of who God is. The fullness of God dwelled in Jesus mm-hmm. himself. All of the Godhead was wrapped up in the nature or in the person of Jesus. Now, um, and and not scripture. So it's like, okay, does scripture more does scripture clearly um, more clearly demonstrate the nature and character of God, or does Jesus more clearly demonstrate the nature of God? The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Um, you know, this is in um, this is in Colossians. For in Christ. All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily formed. Yep. Yep. So even scripture itself describes that the most clear authoritative Mm -hmm. picture of who God is, is in the person of Jesus. Yes. Not in the pages of scripture. Yes. Um, So I don't know if we could make, maybe if we thought long enough about it, we might be able to make arguments for for that same type of movement in other with other theological things but um that's the one that came to mind but so I, I i i agree i think the avenue through which i would probably approach and is the like the biggest thing to um a very strict or limited view of authority or um and, and revelation and understanding that revelation is that sola scriptura is kind of why we have like there's some ridiculous amount like I think there's probably two new do- denominations every year like there's mm-hmm. thousands of denominations particularly in America yeah. um, that are so small they're very regional many of them you will have never heard of and you will never hear of because there's only maybe like ten churches that belong to that particular denomination. But one of the reasons we continue to have new denominations pop up and a large portion of them hold a high view of Sola Scriptura and they're saying, well, everybody else is doing it wrong because we're going to go take the Bible and rediscover Christianity, me, and the Bible. Or just do everything that the Bible says. Do everything that the Bible says. Every every other church is doing things that the Bible doesn't say. We're going to be the church that does everything that the Bible does say. Right. So, like, I I made a very small offhand comment earlier when we were talking about sacraments, and I said uh, foot washing is a sacrament. There are a few small denominations that believe that that is a Mm. third sacrament. Okay. I, I, I ran into one at one point and they were like, we believe that communion is a sacrament, baptism is a sacrament, and foot washing is a sacrament. And actually, if you look at the text, it has just about as much emphasis as the communion narrative it's does. It's the same, well. yeah, and it's the same in John chapter 13. Um, so, yeah, so yeah. they would regularly wash, I think instead of not just having communion once a month, they would wash each other's feet once a month, was a regular part of their worship. Okay. Um, so that's a, I can't remember what that denomination was, but that was a core element of that church's denomination. Huh. Now the rest of their things were just bland evangelical. Right. 
um, everything else was pretty much the same. And so the question that um, philosophically we run into and, and part of the problem of, of saying only the Bible is that it's what we end up meaning by that is only the Bible and my particular interpretation decisions on the Bible. Right. Um, everyone puts on some glasses when they read the Bible and it is, it is highly dangerous yep. to walk, say, I'm just going to take the Bible and I'm just going to go into the woods and I'm just going to be there with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to decide what the Bible means, me and the Holy Spirit in the Bible, in the woods, right? That's a very, like, I'm characterizing, but not, not, but not, not too hard. But also not um, there yeah. The amount of people who I run into who just like, I don't need church. I've got the Bible. Like, it's just me, God, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, and that's my church, right? Yep. Um, and you want to talk about how many different cults get started? It's because... <laughs> Someone takes the Bible and disregards everybody else and then runs into the woods and reads it by themselves yep. and then creates a new understanding of it. Yep. Um, and so without getting overly far into the weeds, but every single one of us, if you do any level amount of Bible study, you bring something along with you yep. that guides you in your biblical interpretation. Yep. You are not opening a passage. You and I, when we open a passage on Sunday morning, we are not opening the passage, and we are not open to being persuaded that we're not Trinitarians. Correct. Right? Like, right. we come with an assumption that the history of church's orthodoxy, the creeds, the things the church has universally believed across ages, is a thing that we can bring along as interpretation tools— not as things to be necessarily uh, rejudged again in our weekly yeah. sermon prep. Correct. And you out there, if you're listening, watching, you probably do the same thing, but you maybe do it through the lens of what does my favorite three preachers think about this passage? Mm -hmm. And you're using them as interpretive guides and mm -hmm. guardrails. Mm -hmm. All of us do that in some way. And to pretend that we don't is... It's foolish. Foolish and ignorant. Yeah. So yeah. that's my rant. Wow. <laughs> you ranted so hard. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are like, if anyone ever wondered what Luke unhinged looks like. That was it. That was it. <laughs> Uncut. Uncut. Oh, goodness. So um, good grief. So she's got two more. Protestantism rejects truly Christian ideals, even when the Bible explicitly states otherwise. That is so vague as to be meaningless, in my opinion. Yep. I, I don't know what she means by that. No, me neither. Um, yeah, and that's where her, her, her uh, proof texting stops, so she doesn't have anything. Just say there. And then her last thing is Protestant individuals may have the best intentions and really love God, but as long as they reject the one true church, they are still buying into a heresy. Which essentially just comes back to her initial point that all Protestants, Protestants are heretics. Heretics, yes. And because you would have to define what is the one true church. She obviously defines it as the Roman Catholic Church. Yes. Right. And um I don't think Jesus was a part of the Roman Catholic Church. 
No. Well, it wasn't Roman. Exactly. <laughs> exactly my point. <laughs> exactly my right. point. Some, something happened when Roman became a significant modifier to church. Church, right. Um, and so we, and that's a whole history lesson. But yes. I think that's – that. yeah, like if you think, if you're of the persuasion – and there are Protestant, small Protestant denominations out there that do believe that they are – also the one true church. There are those out there and they think everybody else, all the other denominations are wrong and are not Christians. Um, that's not what we believe. No. Right. Maybe this would take, maybe we'll just kind of end out with, um, since we're a little bit on our longer side, as far as episodes go, maybe just end with a brief, uh, do you think it's worth mentioning our, how we do use the word Catholic? Um, yeah, I mean, we can, like, there's, you know, there's Roman Catholic, right? which is indicative of the church, the Roman Catholic church, the Pope, the Pope, the papacy, right? right? Episcopal structure, you know, all of that. Um, and then there is the word little C Catholic, Mm -hmm. which historically tends to just mean universal or like throughout all ages, those who express faith in Jesus Christ in any denomination. Who belong to the invisible church. Invisible, universal church triumphant right. in heaven with Jesus right now and yep. church on this earth and church to come before us. Yep. Like Universal Catholic Church, which is why, like, especially in the Apostles' Creed, mm-hmm. um, probably one of the more famous of the creeds, um, there has historically been, you know, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and people are like, "Ooh, the Catholic Church! Ooh, I don't believe in the Roman Catholic Church." Right. right. Um, and it's not. It's not talking about the Roman, Roman Catholic Church. It's talking about the Roman Catholic it's Church, written before the Roman Catholic Church existed. Exactly. Uh, so it's talking about the Universal Church, which is why you'll see some Protestant denominations, of course, change the wording in their hymn books or in their yes. in their use of the Apostles' or Creed, or put an apostrophe next to it, right? And they'll they'll cancel out Catholic and they'll put Universal because they don't want to give anyone the Roman Catholic heebie-jeebies by saying the word Catholic in a Protestant right. church. Yes. Um, Catholic has a meaning apart from the Catholic Church. Right. Which is unfortunate because I think it's almost like the word Catholic has become a brand. Yes. Associated with the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. How we would refer to Roman Catholicism is by calling them Catholics. Right. And using that singular uh, adjective in that name Mm -hmm. as – and so no longer we have a – we don't talk often about this concept. And so I think that – hot take, I think that can sometimes lead churches to being overly antagonistic towards one another in the Protestant realm of thinking, we've got it, you don't, we're doing it right, you're doing it wrong, which is not one of our cores here at Conduit. We want to believe and celebrate that there are lots of churches um, proclaiming the good news of Christ, and they're great churches, and we hope you go to one. Yeah. It doesn't have to be us. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. We, we pray for universal awakening in the body of Christ yep. across all denominations, both yep. Catholic and Protestant. And yep. that's even important. We could, we could even have really important questions about the difference between Roman Catholicism in South America yeah. and Roman Catholicism in the Northeast of the United States. Yep. 
Yeah. Big difference. Yep. Big, big difference. And, so. and not as, again, we said this up front, maybe it me, just merits reiterating. We don't hate Catholics. I actually love them. Yeah. And I love 90% of their theology. Yep. Most of their orthopraxy. Yep. Um, I have a number of Catholic authors who I like to read. Yep. I, I, I watch Bishop Barron yep. on YouTube, listen to his podcast. Yep. I think he's a great thinker, great yep. theologian of the church. So, But we remain staunchly not Catholic. Yeah, I remain staunchly not Catholic. Yep. yep. I don't pray to Mary. Uh, I don't believe in transubstantiation. I don't believe that the Pope has any larger spiritual authority over me than anyone else in the yep. church. So. Cool. Well, if you thought this was interesting or you've run across a similar video that you want to send us to get us going, um, you can send that to us. Um, You can text us links and you can also just text us um, questions and topics at uh, phone number 716-201-0507. So if you text that to us, we won't necessarily respond, but we will get those and we do respond to those mailbag episodes. So. I hope that you send that and that you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.